and welcome to Pop Tarts. Be me, me, me. She wants to give them a second life. And I was ready to see teddy bears. I wouldn't join the cult. That don't mistreat animals. You ever had nuts? Scandal. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We are both editors of Bust Magazine in Brooklyn, New York. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today, we're going to be talking about taxidermy, people. Yes. Taxidermy. It's an art form that requires practitioners to be sculptors, biologists, and naturalists all at once. The blood and guts aspects of preserving animals for display have traditionally made taxidermy a male-dominated space. However, women are making a mark in the field like never before. And helping us discuss this topic today is documentary filmmaker Erin Durham. Her new (laughs) film, Stuffed, takes a deep dive into the state of the art. Welcome, Erin, to Pop-Tarts. Thank you so much, guys. I'm so excited to be here. I read in your press materials that you are a vegetarian, that you are an animal lover. You have a master's in environmental history. How and why did you end up making an entire movie about taxidermy? It was very strange. Uh, My partner and I knew we wanted to make an environmental documentary. Um, She's also an environmentalist, so we were just brainstorming what to do. I sent her a bunch of ideas about uh, things I've already done research on in the past with um, prepping for my dissertation. And she sent me an email back saying, what about taxidermy? And I was mad. I was like, that's disgusting. Why would you say that? (laughs) I'm a vegetarian. I just, I was so offended, but she's so brilliant. And I just love her that I didn't say that. I just waited and read all the materials she sent and the, the links. She sent a link of Ellie Weekly, um, the article about Alice Markham. And I was just like, wow, this is maybe this is there's something to this. So um, I spent the whole week researching it and kind of fell in love with this. It's like a group of people that are so misunderstood and treated almost like, you know, monsters, but they love animals and they protect them. And um, their work is very much tied to education and conservation and history. And I just thought it was a beautiful story that I wanted to tell. And mm-hmm. then as soon as I started meeting them, I knew that it was it was going to be a very easy story to tell because they were just so lovable. I mean, everywhere I went, they uh-huh. were just wonderful people that had little foster dogs running around or chickens in their backyard and they're just they're just happy positive people that happen to do taxidermy for a living. Uh-huh. <laughs> the movie is called Stuffed and I remember when I was a little kid growing up in New York, my parents, I remember so vividly, were like, do you want to go to the museum to see stuffed animals? And I was ready to see teddy bears. And I went there <laughs> and it was real bears. But then also they would be like, do you, at home, they would be like, do you want a stuffed animal? And then it would be a teddy bear. So I never knew whether I was going to be getting like a taxidermied animal or a plush toy when a, a stuffed animal was offered to me. I love that. As a child. So that, <laughs> I, I appreciated that it was called stuffed. I was like, yeah. Some of them did not like that. They got, some of them got really mad. They were like, no, you're perpetuating the stereotype. It is not a stuffed animal. And I'm like, I know, but that's the joke. Right. Is that everybody thinks it's but stuffed. I was very, very surprised actually watching the film because I, I did think that it was like, full of like sawdust like some kind of like carny prize but yeah. actually i didn't realize that there's really significant sculpture going yeah, on underneath it, all the sculpture was mind-blowing and yeah. that there's Detail. unbelievably detailed sculpture that nobody sees but they kind of see in the fact that the animal actually looks like itself in life right but i had no idea the amount of work that went into the sculpture beneath the taxidermy until i saw your film yeah it's real artistry yeah, that was the part I genuinely didn't even know going in because I was more interested in the history of taxidermy, kind of this really um, deep history that tied it to conservation with Teddy Roosevelt and just, you know, this incredible backstory that's in the movie. But when I started to see, especially Travis de Villiers, um, he's the South African in the mm-hmm. movie, and he 
uh, he taught himself how to sculpt like that. He Whoa. just picked up clay, like went through high school, wasn't allowed to take art class because they they deemed him like not worthy of taking art class. And then because of that in South Africa, you can't go to college for art. Oh, so he it was wow. really I mean, it was this really weird situation. But if you look at this guy, he can pick up anything, a pencil, anything and just build like he I mean, he built a lion's head just for us to film in a day. He built the little the little um, maquette that's next to yeah. it in a couple of hours. He did it's my insane. face in a He's couple like of a hours. Savant. He's incredible. Like it just blew my mind. And and they all have that kind of ability, like Alice's ability to paint. And she has the tiniest little hands and fingers and her, her getting into these um, the hummingbirds that she did for the museums. I mean, I just don't know how she has that kind of precision and artistry to go so detailed, you know. Uh-huh. It's just they're all they're all like that. Yop and Ferry in, in Amsterdam filming them build those giant cages with the birds on the outside mm-hmm. and watching them you know, choose the the jawbone for the lion and the eyes for the parrots and just all these things that I was like, oh my God, you guys are brilliant and nobody knows, you know? And I think if you if you knew that, you would appreciate Natural History Museum so much more, yeah, right. especially considering so much of them in, say, the American Museum and the LA Natural History Museum, the biggest ones and, and the Smithsonian, they're their stuff is so old. It, yeah. I mean, these these dioramas are over a hundred years old, and they have freezers full of animals from over a hundred years old. So it's it's history that, in some cases, doesn't exist anymore. Were there any challenges that you observed women in taxidermy encountering that their male counterparts didn't have to contend with? Were there any Me Too movements happening in in taxidermy? Yeah, I mean that. That is so funny because this article just came out today in Women in Hollywood. That's me talking about the Me Too movement. And it's literally like parallel because Alice, you know, she's always dressing up and she would go to the um, the state competitions and the the world competition. And at the beginning, she was pretty judged for how she looked. They were like, oh, this girl, she doesn't know what she's doing. And she's just getting attention because she's a pretty girl mm-hmm. and doing taxidermy. And in reality, she was killing it. I mean, these are blind judging and she was just winning, winning, winning over but and over again. But not literally killing anything. No, no, not <laughs> literally killing anything. She was just better than them. And there were there were just like in my industry, like, you know, I would get crap for being too bubbly or being too feminine looking. And they're like, you're a director. You need to be more serious. And I'm like, sorry, that's not my personality. Like, can't do anything about it. And Alice and I bonded instantly over that and you know she doesn't care how people like view her she's going to constantly beat them because she is a hard-working not just an artist but a hard-working artist that's constantly learning so um she she had some help ken walkers in the movie who's um he was a big name still is a really big name in the taxidermy industry and he stood up for her and the other females that she works with that were getting kind of like eyes rolling at them as they're walking by. And they're and he's like, no, they're actually really good. You know, you need to you need to chill out with that. And and now, I mean, people just know because you can't look at her work and not like <laughs> be in awe. It just it mm-hmm. looks so real. And she puts just like Yop and Fairy, she puts so much time into the habitat around the birds She's the taxidermist the Moore Laboratory in California uses exclusively for their birds now. I mean, she her precision and attention to um, anatomical correctness is like she's the best. But yeah, I mean, they I think it's it's very parallel to the film industry or to the music industry or any industry because they're artists that are competing in a predominantly male arena and they're having to maneuver their way around that and still keep their identity. And I think that's like a part of the feminist movement now, which is your identity is your identity and you don't need to change it to become a part of the standard or the norm now, mm-hmm. meaning more masculine or whatever, you know. Is the standard, has the standard for taxidermists been male because people were shooting and killing the things that they were then preparing? Was it because you have to have the physical strength to drag large animals around? Was it because like it's a bloody job? Uh, 
there have always been females in the industry. They just didn't get recognition. Mm-hmm. Like that woman in the in the Midwest who's been doing it for 30 years. Which one? There was a woman whose job was being eliminated at oh, the Natural oh, History oh, Museum. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Wendy. Wendy is a powerhouse. She's also another example. She was blind judged when she was 19 years old with all the other taxidermists in the area for this very sought after um, job to be the head taxidermist. She um, she was blind judged and 19 years old and a woman in the 70s and won. And they didn't care. They just wanted the best. But that's pretty rare, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, there was an original, like, Martha Ann Maxwell. She was in the same era of Carl Akeley and um, made huge leaps for the taxidermy industry. But, yeah, it is predominant. Like, Martha Ann Maxwell was also a hunter. And she was, she was photographed in the late 1800s in front of large amounts of animals that she had hunted. And that was very, I mean, the... The um, newspaper clippings that go along with that are pretty messed up because the men that were doing it were getting no backlash. And she, I mean, people were just saying like, this is like, this is unhealthy for a woman. She has a bloodthirst she wants to kill and that's not normal. But for men, it's preserving your masculinity and it's Mm -hmm. good for your health and all of these things. And it was just like same, literal same year. And she's having to deal with that crap. Mm -hmm. So that, um, that's definitely true today too like you know alice and quite a few of them that were vegetarian or vegan at one point stopped publicizing it because they didn't want it to be like oh well there are some good taxidermists that don't eat meat and then there are others that you know you shouldn't support and they're not true artists because they do eat meat or hunt or whatever so we tried to get away from that in the movie and not make it about that because it we just that's too much movie. We wanted the movie to be about <laughs> mm-hmm. art. But there is a certain moral compass to taxidermy that yeah. the the movie does sort of address. For instance, there is the preservation of Lonesome George, mm-hmm. who was the last Pinta Island tortoise. He was preserved after he died of natural causes with help from the naturalist who studied him all his life and who loved him. That was really um, cute. and that was very moving when he was preserved in just the way that they wanted to remember him in death as they knew him personally in life. And so that sounds like a good and right taxidermy project. But then there's these famous dioramas in New York's Museum of Natural History, mm-hmm. which I grew up checking out. And they're beloved, but they were made during this mad scramble by scientists to preserve wildlife because it was just being wiped off the face of the earth. Yes. And they weren't really trying to preserve anything. They weren't preservationists. They were just like, well, we should, you know, stuff a couple of these because they're all going to be gone. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, what do you see as the moral compass today? I know that there was a lot of people making pointing out that they had deals with zoos or other places where once an animal died of natural causes, then the taxidermists would get their hands on it or people were hunting while also being preservationists. Like what, what do you think is the sort of moral standard of the art form right now? I mean, I think it is entirely on who you ask and there the majority of the people in the taxidermy industry, because they are so misunderstood or even if their opinions are different from mine, they're going to protect everybody because they don't want, you know, more backlash on the industry, even though some of them like in the movie, some of them are hunters. None of them hunted any of the animals that we filmed, but some of them have hunted in the past and some of them would never hunt. And they don't judge each other for that. And that's something I learned because my I grew up with my dad who had hunted a few times in my childhood and it just broke my heart. I hated, I mean, I hated the idea of that. And I've never hunted and I don't eat meat and all of these things that I felt like I was an ethical person and disconnected from um, the killing of animals. And Alice was really awesome. The first day we met, she was like, oh, well, you're not, you're not disconnected. You are in the food chain. We're all in the food chain and therefore we are all hurting animals because we're alive. And that took me a while to to grasp because she said, um, she, I, she said, well, what do you eat? And I said, you know, mainly vegetables and a lot of lentils and, and chickpeas. And she was like, OK, well, the the vegetables that you eat, the game management around the around those farms for 
invasive birds like European starlings that come in and eat the crops, they are managed, aka hunted, Mm -hmm. to keep those crops alive. Therefore, the crops you ate were a result of game management. And, you know, it took me a long time to understand what that means. And I got asked this recently, and I just think I don't know enough about regulation because it's constantly changing in the Mm -hmm. country to make a stance. But I do know that, like, from everybody I've talked to, we're all wrong. Like, we're wrong. (laughs) Like, we're, I was wrong. Like, I still, I still don't know enough to answer that question right. But I know that, I mean, the only stance I would take on the taxidermy side is that hunting to create taxidermy is not something I would do. I would, I think it's okay in a lot of other scenarios, but I mean, that was something that they all kind of pushed across is nobody hunts to taxidermy. That's, you know, the whole trophy hunting side is a whole nother world that we did not even come close to because it's just a whole nother thing. And there was a movie, speaking of movies, other movies, a movie called Trophy that came out a year before mine. I knew about it while we were filming and I was so excited to watch it. But it was at Sundance and it's all about trophy hunting and it shows both sides, um, kind of the side of how it helps local tribes, how it helps um, local economies in Africa. And this is all centered around Africa. And then the other side, which is, you know, kind of the um, American, mainly American, but also Europeans kind of pushing their agendas onto those areas and saying trophy hunting is bad. And it's hard. You come out of it going like, oh, crap. Like, I don't really know. Like, I'm not pro, but I get it a little bit now. Like, I don't know. I still couldn't do it. One thing about this movie is that it made me question literally everything I I was so aggressively like opinionated about before mm-hmm. because I was so aggressive about taxidermy and then I met these people and realized I was an idiot. You know, I've been so aggressive about hunting, but then I've seen examples of hunting that preserved species, that preserved my vegetables that I ate that night, that, you know, you know, increased populations and and helped not spread disease and all these things that I was like, I didn't know it did that. Watching your movie, it made me think about things like um, I have, you know, I, I've been quite strident at certain points in my life, yeah. but I have a godson who I'm crazy about and yeah. he um, loves animals mm-hmm. and he, I take him to places like Museum of Natural History mm-hmm. and also I've taken him to zoos and mm-hmm. to aquariums and, you know, I know that animals are being exploited in those environments and I feel Mm -hmm. crappy about it. But Mm -hmm. also he loves animals and seeing real animals Mm -hmm. um, really helps foster that passion in him. And, you know, usually it's his idea that he wants to go to those places and I can't look into his little face and say no. But also I, I feel excited about the love of animals that places like that, um, foster in him yeah like I I feel like other versions of myself were very clear-cut about the immorality of those actions yes. and then the auntie Emily version is like less sure about it yeah and, and um, I was definitely thinking about that because of you know the discussion in your in your film about yeah. how like these animals are having this whole second life after death traveling around as educational tools yeah how there is no substitute for like the actual animal in terms yeah. of like showing kids like mm-hmm. what an animal is. And you choose like I learned after this and I was just very privileged to get to spend a lot of time with these people, especially Dave Jackson, who owns the conservation ambassadors, the animals that travel. And I figured out it's just like, um, you know, where they say like the best activism is like how you spend your money. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to support something, spend your money wisely. And I'm just very strict now because I have kids and I'm very strict about where we go zoo wise, um, aquarium wise. You can go to places that will say on their website all over the place that they are, you know, a facility that has like very strict rules about how the animals are treated, how many hours they're allowed to be around people, like no riding dolphins policies, all of these things. And um, Alice is the one who taught me that. She's like, oh, you just need to find the right museum and the right 
the right zoos that that don't mistreat animals. And, you know, there are some things that just they always in in my experience always do circuses. So I ban circuses. Mm -hmm. And there are zoos that are on the smaller end that Mm. it's almost impossible for them to to have those standards. So I don't go to those. Um, I know San Diego Zoo has incredible um, standards for how they treat their animals. There is a zoo slash aquarium in Hawaii. Same thing. They're just, they're a research facility and they're there just to protect the species around the islands. Um, there are places all over the country that are just there to protect animals that have been hurt. Dave Jackson's in California. Those animals that you saw would have been euthanized if he didn't get them. They were burnt in the California fires or they were um, trafficked in you know into the u.s and they would have been killed so you know he's given them the ability to have a very long life and that man spends like every inch of every dollar he has to his name on those animals like it's i mean i stayed there for three days and i was just like you're the greatest human that's like ever (laughs) lived like and he was the one who convinced me that taxidermy there was something good about it because he said he doesn't hunt he would never hunt all he wants to do is protect these animals, but he sees pelts and taxidermy and um, tactile things that kids can have as a direct connection to getting them to care more in the future. And you don't, what does he say? You don't have a, a population um, who acts if you don't have a population who cares. And if the best way to get to your godson's heart is through seeing an animal and he's more likely to protect that animal in the future or that habitat in the future, then you might be right to take him to those places you know i appreciate that (laughs) thank you i would like to know your views on rogue taxidermy versus naturalist taxidermy um just to make it clear to our listeners naturalist taxidermy is trying to uh preserve the animal as much as possible the way it was in nature the way it was in Mm -hmm. life whereas rogue taxidermy um which was sort of pioneered by serena brewer um, is sort of takes a cryptozoological oddities tack and, you know, combines parts of different species to make whole new mythological I've been to some wild-ass rogue taxidermies things. One was a Chinatown trash can tour, and you, they just went to, we went to dumpsters and dumpster oh. dove fish and... Were there gremlins in the trash cans? <laughs> but there was like, you know, you would find like a goose bones and a... Wow. Fish head and then you wow. just sewed it together. Yeah, like is rogue yeah. taxidermy disrespectful? Is it somehow fucked up? Yeah. Or what is your view after making a whole film about taxidermy? You know, I only had that one day with Serena. Love Serena. I love her take on why she does it. She only deals with animals that are products of the meat industry. And she basically takes those and shows people why the meat industry is wrong and what they do to animals. So she's using them as like a display to show the grotesque side of something that's hidden away from most people. And she deals with animals that were roadkill, like hit by cars, rabbits, cats, things that were hit by cars. And she truly believes that she, she wants to give them a second life. She gilds them. She mummifies them. She does these things. It's that's her own thing. Like I, a lot of people do rogue taxidermy. Um, I think Serena has her own, you know, niche. Like I saw this really cool shop, like really high end shop in Vancouver. And it had a ton of rogue taxidermy. My favorite piece, and this is kind of a representative of all the pieces in there, was a mouse standing up, arms out, chest puffed up. And he was ripping open his skin to show a big superman s like he was superman he was about to get real like he was about to rip his suit off and go fly and you saw that piece and instantly knew he's superman like he's mouse superman and i and it was really beautiful too it wasn't like poorly done it was somebody knew what they were doing so i was like oh but like serena would never do that that's not like you know her stuff is giving animals that died a new fantastical life so it's hard I kind of place her in her own magical, awesome category. I lean personally like things I would put in my own house. I lean towards, you know, the more naturalist sides because that's my that's what my degrees are in. That's what I just I'm obsessed with. I have the armadillo that's in the movie I got to keep. So like Uh it's an armadillo and it looks like an armadillo should, you know, 
and yap and fairy stuff, they're not really naturalist and they're not rogue. They're fine art. You know, they care about the story. And that as a filmmaker really speaks to me because they are telling, you know, a, a very like story that could be real, but it just ups the ante. It's like adding lipstick to your face if you want your lips to look bigger. You know, it's not, I don't look like a different person. I just look like an enhanced me. I think that's what they do. They just add lipstick, you know, (laughs) (laughs) just a little, just make it a little, little fancier. So I love, I love that about theirs. And I love like Serena's and all the rogue taxidermy I saw, like, especially in Vancouver, that stuff's just really high end. I don't like the stuff that's like not done well. And someone slaps a rogue taxidermy sign on it to get away with it not being done well. I'm like, nope, that's just bad. Like, that's just somebody <laughs> who didn't do a good job. Like, so that, and I, any taxidermist would agree with me. They were like, stop saying it's rogue. It's not rogue. It's just bad, you know? But there's, you know, the the little vintage pieces that people are starting to um, collect that are from the Victorian era. Mm-hmm. And those are done really wonky. The little kitten wedding. The kitten wedding. Cool. That gave me nightmares the first time I saw that. I was like, no, that that can't be right. But, you know, that stuff is a part of of taxidermy history and our history, our cultural history of art. That's that was a that was all the rage. Like people wanted birds on their hats and they wanted kitten wedding, you know, with pearls around their necks, you know, as a display in their living room. Like just very different from Mm kind of how we live. but. That was a hundred years ago. That was what people wanted to to display. You mentioned that you have an armadillo. Do you have any other taxidermy in your home? Um, I have the armadillo from Alice, which was really cool. Um, I have a bunny that was from the world show that uh, this guy was like throwing away. And I was like, please don't. Like it just like kind of broke my heart to see this little tiny little black and white Chinese bunny go into the um go into the bin and uh my crew like ran and and saved all the bunnies oh and uh we separated them amongst us and we have like a a bunny uh like we call it like a co-sharing like (laughs) co-parenting agreement (laughs) where we get to each have them but um not to put a damper on our light talk oh i'm sorry but okay i feel like the world is ending Mm -hmm. um the climate crisis puts taxidermy kind of in a different light for Realist me. Realist rims over here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm keeping it real. It feels like humans are literally destroying the entire planet really fast. There's no telling what species will be wiped out next. Does this make taxidermy more important than ever? Does it make it less responsible, more responsible? How are taxidermists addressing the issue of habitat collapse? I mean, the just to start with saying this, I made the movie to talk about exactly what you just said. It wasn't to talk really to talk about taxidermists. I did think they were a misunderstood subculture and I wanted to kind of shine light on their beauty. But more importantly, I wanted to show from an entirely new perspective that, you know, that that uh, that quote that Dave Jackson says in the movie that if all of the animals in the world were or if all of the humans in the world were to disappear tomorrow the animals would be just fine if all of the animals in the world were to disappear tomorrow humans would not be and he said you know turns out we need them and they don't need us Mm -hmm. and and that is something that just really hit home for me taxidermists their approach is education i mean they drill education it doesn't matter if you want to hear it all they do is talk about disappearing habitats talk about um the what is it the natural greenways that should be going over highways Mm -hmm. to allow um, animals to cross safely which also protects us but also protects them builds bigger habitats all of these things like um they don't stop talking about that stuff about how um even the ones that don't hunt talk consistently about how hunters and anti-hunters need to be working together because a lot of the species that are disappearing are disappearing because that isn't happening, because either, you know, hunters are being blamed for something that poachers are doing and therefore mm-hmm. all of hunting goes away and then those species go away mm-hmm. um, or, you know, the opposite happens. And 
and you know the the thing that Yap and Ferry talk about that happened in Europe, where hunting is seen as I mean the one of the worst things you can do in in their area in Holland, and uh, so they bring in they don't have animals and in that area and they bring in all of these deer to make tourists and people happy. They're like, oh, look at all those cute deer. But in the winter, all the deer starve to death. And that doesn't happen here because hunters feed the deer. Hunters game manage to make sure there aren't, you know, there aren't too many deer. That doesn't happen. And that was something Fairy just said so eloquently. And I'm not saying it as well as he was, but that's why I make movies. (laughs) He said, he said, I'm not a fan of hunting, but I think that's wrong. He thinks it's wrong that the deer are starving to death rather than being humanely mm-hmm. put down. And and that maybe just putting a you know a massive amount of deer into one property for humans' enjoyment is wrong. Yeah. And that's that's just something that, you know, these are things that we don't talk about because we want to see animals and we want to be a part of their lives and um be up close and personal. And taxidermists obviously agree they love doing that too but they want to kind of show the dangers of that and i feel like they they should have some kind of like psa that they make that they send out to the world like this is how you can help and yes the world sucks right now but like we can make it better (laughs) aaron are you a feminist hardcore yes (laughs) tell me about your feminist journey how did you know that you were a feminist and how has your feminism evolved whilst you were a filmmaker. It's evolved so much. Okay, so I started out, um, I'll make this this transition very brief, but uh, high school, very dyslexic, uh, very awkward, very uncomfortable uh, in my own skin and just kind of used humor and, and avoided all kind of conversations and acted like a ditz because I didn't want to like be anything I didn't know what I wanted to be so I was just just kind of hid in that shell of like I'm ditzy blonde like it was terrible and it wasn't until um college that I got diagnosed with dyslexia learned how to read in college um and kind of built my confidence just solely around my education and I was acting at the same time to kind of pay for school and just because I really loved to act so that started a whole new breed of I'm a confident woman, but it was sort of built around my looks because now I was an actress and treated better if I looked better. And that kind of started this downward cycle again of going back to that high school opinion of myself that was built around what other people thought. And it wasn't it wasn't until finishing grad school, getting into um, doing research behind the scenes filming, lighting, running audio, doing all of this stuff for PBS that I realized that my main worth had nothing to do with my looks. And I could just like Alice do whatever I wanted with my looks. And if people judged me, they weren't the right people to work with. And that just became uh, a very, I would say four years ago, a very, very new person emerged. And it was, don't talk to me like I'm lower than you because I'm younger than you or because I'm a woman. Um, don't don't disrespect me or talk about my looks. It's unacceptable. You know, don't talk poorly about women around me. You know, the I went to this interview with a uh, Jan Balster who DP'd stuffed. We've worked on multiple things before that. And and I was just like, he's this giant German guy, like from Berlin. And I was like, oh God, he's gonna walk all over me on set. And he was amazing. Like he was like, no, I follow your lead and I show you respect. And then the whole crew shows you respect. And then we have a happy crew. And I was like, yes, like, okay. So it was this, this new form of feminism kind of in a great way formed around both men and women showing me that my worth and uh, my ability to lead was very much tied to my brain and nothing else. And that was just the most empowering thing in the world because it doesn't matter if I'm dressed glam like Alice or not, or if I'm super bubbly one day or not, it hasn't, my brain's still the same. So Mm. that's like kind of my new form of feminism is be really, really proud 
of the hard work you've put into yourself. And for me, that's my education and my empathy, my ability to see through other people's eyes. And I'm always going to be proud of myself for that. Mazel tov. Okay. That answer. <laughs> that's inspiration. <laughs> so tell me, what are your hopes and your dreams and your plans for 2020? What's on your vision board? And also, oh how can people see your movie? Um, it's playing in New York for the next two weeks. And then we're having uh, theatrical screenings around the U.S. for the next three months. Amazing. So excited about that. It's my first film to get distribution like that. So that's happening for the next three months. And then we are moving on to, you know, a digital release um, immediately after. So in February, you'll be able to turn on your TV and watch it somewhere. I'm not sure where, <laughs> but it's being distributed through Music Box. So, oh, and in Europe, there's a TV version coming out. Awesome. Oh, nice. Which is really cool. <laughs> and what what's happening in 2020 for you? What are oh, you working on? Uh, 2020. Oh, my gosh. So much stuff is happening. I'm working on another misunderstood sul- subculture um, <laughs> that I've been working on secretly for two years, trying to, while finishing up post-production, I've been um, backpacking and climbing and doing all of these things with this community of just the kind of the top content creators in the world, the people um, who get their stuff published on Nat Geo's Instagram and Smithsonian's Insta- Instagram and Condé Nast that saw their sign downstairs. Um, these are people that are incredible artists that use social media to kind of build a career for themselves. And they have this very nasty term built around them, influencer. Mm-hmm. And they hate that term. And I didn't understand it until like taxidermy kind of till now. So it's been two years of me getting to know them building up the stamina to do these long ass hikes to get to the places we shoot um, photos. And uh, that's the next, the one of the next projects. Is so they're like that. nature influencers? Yeah, they're, um, okay. So the kind of the tagline is they are, they're content creators that are, you know, popular on Instagram or YouTube and they're using their popularity for good. So instead of just buying bigger apartments or, you know, being really proud of themselves, they start promoting nonprofits or they start donating their time to building schools in Africa or a nature preserve in Costa Rica or going down to the fires in Brazil. Like, you know, just they're using their popularity to get corporations that, that, you know, pay for a lot of their travel brands. They're using those people to, um, they're holding them more accountable, basically. They're saying, I'll take your budget and do a marketing campaign for you, but you're going to pay for this many families to relocate from the Amazon fires. And you're going to, I mean, they're doing these things. and That's amazing. And people don't really have a choice. Brands are like, oh, wait, I'm going to look good. You're going to look good. And we're going to help people. And it's the same budget. Done. You know, uh-huh. like, so that, um, but they're still just like, you see these articles come out constantly that's just really like, bad-mouthing influencers and some of them are I'm sure terrible just like there are some taxidermists that are terrible and some museum workers that are terrible whatever but like they're they're doing something really unique and really cool and I'm just excited to like bust that open amazing sounds awesome that's what I'm doing I'm excited (laughs) for you we're gonna take the briefest of breaks and then when we come back we're gonna ask Aaron and Aaron's gonna ask Callie and hopefully Callie's gonna ask me What you watching? (laughs) Hey, podcast fans. Did you know that the best place to listen to your favorite shows ad-free is Stitcher Premium? They've got Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, My Favorite Murder, Wolverine The Lost Trail, Bitch Sesh, The Fantasy Footballers, Science Rules with Bill Nye, and more, all without commercial interruptions. And we can hook you up with a sweet deal. To get one month free, go to stitcher.com slash premium and use promo code POPTARTS. That's stitcher.com slash premium, promo code POPTARTS. Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. 
Get in touch via wolfyvibespublicity.com for details and quotes. And tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Uh, essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious and I knew would make great podcasts. And every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have docket. We dockets. all have a docket. Sex. Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> Scams. I'm Caitlin I'm Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German-Russian heiress, and she seems like she has a lot of money, and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. Amazing. So smart. I mean, so like smart. To, I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. And we're back. Hello. As is our custom, we are going to ask our guest, First, what you watching? And when I say what you watching, it's a very broad question. We want to know about movies, television, books, music, music videos, uh, podcasts, the writing on the bathroom wall. If it is pop cultural and you are consuming it, we want to know. Aaron, what you watching? I am watching a lot of stuff. I'm on the festival circuit right now with stuff. So we are, um, I'm starting to get like my favorites. There's one called uh well groomed which we keep getting paired at the same festivals because we both have animal documentaries but hers is about the the art of like dog grooming like Ooh. where you like spray paint their you know like crazy hair and it's just really really edgy and well done and the soundtrack is done by this like dope dj i think he's from brooklyn and uh we started watching the shield again agents of shield it's the um, it's a Marvel show. It's a Marvel show that I stopped watching years ago and now I'm rewatching it and just, you know, super, super into that. Some shows are just comforting that way. It's my bedtime show. It's mm-hmm. like that. I, I like work all day. I have a hard time watching docs because I'm making them mm-hmm. um, and because I watch them so much on the festival circuit. But, you know, there are some, I mean, for the most part, I use documentaries to watch a little bit of and then like learn and then move on to something else. We did that with this movie, Fantastic Fungi, which is all about the uh, the fungus that lives in the world. It's like all around us all the time uh-huh. underneath. And they have these networks underneath the soil that... Uh, they talk to each other. It was Our boss trippy. lady, Lori, is obsessed with mushrooms. mushrooms. Oh. And so she's like... She's all over that documentary. Oh, okay. So she's seen it. Either she's seen it or she's like about to about to see it or she has a link or I know that it's <laughs> on her agenda immediately. It's I can help her with that if she wants because we were at we premiered at the same time at the Maui Film Festival and we watched it outside at the Maui Film Festival. And we were just like, oh my god, we had no idea like the amount of networks and how when things decompose they then get like circulated in the atmosphere through the rainforest in the Amazon and then smack us in the face in New York City and it's just like what like <laughs> it gets it's trippy I mean one of my favorite trippy. X-Files episodes was about underground fungus networks oh my god I, okay I'm obsessed with with X-Files anything sci-fi but X-Files is like my heart it was like one of the wackier ones yeah I think I remember that did they somehow become like in like a a pod like or something in mushroom world under the ground yeah i think i know what you're talking about L- luscious logan has weighed in to let me know that <laughs> they were being co-opted by the psychedelic mushrooms to do their bidding essentially right no they went underground find a killer and found there a mushroom that digests you 
and yes. fills you with uh, psychedelic mushroom uh, juice so that you will yes. stay underground with the mushrooms. And they kept waking up out of the mushroom trip over and over. Um, but, but they were actually still inside. Thank you, Luscious Logan. <laughs> that is what <laughs> the X-Files episode that I was He's thinking speaketh. of. It's so good. I did think of a music one that I've been obsessing over. I'm really into soundtracks right now, but there's this album called The Chopin Project, and it's uh, um, it's two like young um, string players, and they have like the darkest take on these like really classic songs that I just listen to over and over and over again when I write. And they're... Um, I don't know. It's like weird. It's like classical music, but it's really edgy. And it has like, I don't know, just kind of these like really ethereal floaty sounds in it too, but really bold at the same time. I'm like obsessed. Yeah. Cool. That sounds awesome. Callie, what you watching? Well, I just got back from vacay. Went to Madrid and Berlin. (gasps) It was awesome. And in Berlin, we went to this Twin Peaks themed bar called the Black Lodge. That was crazy. It was really tiny. And it had like the zigzag floor and all the signs from it. That place ruled. And went to a lot of really, really old bars where Hemingway went in Madrid. He's all over Madrid. And we went to this one that only served sherry. And it's, um, it's over 70 years old. And you're not allowed to take photographs inside. A lot of places in both Madrid and Berlin are super obsessed with privacy because of World War II. Mm-hmm. And like Berlin, you don't even, you never use a card. You only carry cash because mm-hmm. they don't like the government to track them. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. I'm gonna yeah. stop carrying my card around. Yeah. Um. Then, did you see the South Park that got banned in China? A recent one? Yes. Oh no. Oh my god. Um. Stan's dad. Uh. This season, he's trying to start a weed company, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he finds out that there's so many people in China. So that's like a whole market that he can tap. <laughs> so he goes in a plane to China. Does not bother to Google that weed is. Very illegal there. Yeah. Gets locked up. And so it's totally like brutal on the Chinese government, mm. on how they treat prisoners, mm-hmm. on um, the whole justice system there. And then side plot is Stan and his friends have started a band and um, it's a death metal band. And the band that plays them is this band, which you may remember from our youth. Emily is called Dying Fetus. They were from Maryland in the 90s. Oh my God. Totally death metal. Huh. Old, old school band. Um, and so they start this band and they get signed to this label. And the label is like, well, we have to please the Chinese market because they're the biggest market. And so you can't say a lot of these things about censorship or freedom or rights. Or yeah. Like, yeah. They just keep. They're supposed trying to make a movie to explain and the how whole the, episode got banned in China. The whole episode got banned That's in China. That's not surprising. It yeah. is not at all because, yeah. man, they are fucking brutal. They're they was, really brutal. Um, I watched Fleabag finally while we were on the plane. That's on the list, though. Fleabag in um, Atlanta. Atlanta's I've been told really like two people... Good. This yeah. week, why haven't you been watching Atlanta? So that's on our list like as soon as I get home. Fleabag is amazing. It's like this girl who's, she's very promiscuous. She doesn't always make some very wise choices, mm-hmm. partner wise. And then <laughs> she's got a really weird relationship with her sister. Like she gets really bugged out if Frenemies. you try to. Uh, sort of, but like her, her sister's not into hugs or touch. <laughs> she's like much more reserved and the other girl's always like joking. So they're like pretty much opposites. And then there's also she has a stepmom who is the, such a low key cunt. It's she's the, such a great character. She's just she's like, oh, thanks for these flowers. I'll just leave them out here on the porch. Type of low key cuntness. It's it's really good. So Hensel was totally right. Um, there was a the Late Show recently did flipped interviews where uh, John Oliver and Amy Sedaris both interviewed Stephen Colbert. I saw it. It was Aww. really good. It was hilarious. Amy Sedaris is fucking yes. a treasure. Yes. She was just bringing up things from like their past. She played a game called Triggered. Yeah. And she would just like say a quote to him yeah. and, from their past. And he had to guess what it was. One was like a screaming neighbor that they used to have. It was really great. Wow. Um, And I'm going to save some of these because I wanna, don't want to go too long because it's debate night. People. <laughs> um, I finished The Politician. I think I talked about this last time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this cast is just batshit good. 
Bette Midler, mm. Judith Light, Jessica Lange, Gwyneth Paltrow, mm-hmm. January Jones. It's just stacked, stacked up. And they're all just tiny bit parts for the most and, part. And what is it on again? Netflix. Netflix, mm-hmm. yeah. And so it, it's pretty much like a basic kid is running for president in high school. Mm-hmm. He wants to be president of the country. So he's researched all the presidents and you have to go to Yale and all the other presidents were presidents of their class. So he thinks this is like the most important thing. There's all kind of scandal. <laughs> it's like murder plots and suicides. And um, I, I started that. watching Dolly Parton's America or listening. It's a podcast. Podcast. Yeah. It came out today. I didn't get to finish the whole thing or barely got started because work, 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 work. <laughs> but one interesting tidbit from the beginning is that there's a thing called a Q score. Do you know what this yeah, is? Yeah, it's how famous you are. How famous you are and also like how likable mm. or how unlikable you are. <laughs> and um, Dolly Parton is in the is in the top 10 globally in terms of people being people's favorite. Favorite person of all time. Favorite person. She's magic. She's almost yeah. number one. Yeah. I tried to look it up, but I think you have to have like an account or something to see who is number one. But she's almost number one in terms of people having the least negative things to say about her. And I see that as a fact. Yes. What you can you say the- about Dolly? Nothing. She nothing like negative. saved like an entire town after it burnt to the ground oh. where we live. Like, I mean, she's like just a magical. She's just constantly distributing books to children. She's like, just genuinely everything. Gold. Like you, you could you could tell me that she like gives a puppy to every child that cries, and I'd be like, yeah, I believe it. That makes sense. And it started out talking about uh, this concert that I tailgated in Queens that Dolly played, right? And because I went, I I couldn't get tickets, but the people watching was so yeah. good, and they were the guys talking about how diverse it is and how. Just the aura of being in Dolly's presence made yeah. everybody just be nicer people. Yeah. So if we just had Dolly go yeah. to the White House, yes. maybe she could make Trump less of a shit. Just she by could, being she, near pure. She could joy him to death. Yes, just by being near a, yeah. pure, a heart that pure, maybe she could break yeah. him. I bet. But that's the thing. Dolly Parton is very, very self-consciously apolitical. You cannot get her to talk about politics. Yeah. I know, I know. But maybe if she just said, hey, Trump, and then he'd be like, people are so nice. <laughs> <laughs> Shake it off a little bit. Let's save the environment. Um. Oh, and then I watched Midsommar. Somar, Somar. Mm-hmm. Trash. That was a boring piece of trash. Uh, really? Oh, my God. It's How on my list. How do you make a cult movie? I fell asleep. Oh, How wow. do you make a cult movie not interesting? Mm. people thought it was interesting because it was a horror movie in the daytime if you if nobody had told me it was a horror movie i would have not owned i mean it was pretty yeah that's all i can say nice about it you're you're (laughs) a tough tough customer when it comes to horror i am i am and i had heard a lot of really good things about it so i was looking forward to it but i wanted way more mind fuckery yeah all right i wouldn't join the cult (laughs) <laughs> what have you been watching i'm so glad you asked <laughs> you're going to be shocked to learn that i went out i left my home to oh. engage in the lively arts luscious logan and i went to see la santa cecilia at grammar grammarcy theater mm. they are a mexican-american band they're mm. from la and they play like this weird like i kind of think of them as sort of punk i got into them a few years ago when they opened for elvis costello and they're a seven-piece band. Um, they play cumbia and bossa nova and boleros, but also like kind of alternative, kind of punk. Like there's a lot going on there. And I'm obsessed with the lead singer. Her name is Marisol Hernandez. And she has cat eye glasses and she wears mm. these adorable crinoline bluffed dresses. And she has a giant voice. But she's Mexican-American and her songs are about being Mexican-American. Half of them are in of their songs are in Spanish. Half of mm-hmm. them are in English. Sometimes it's a little bit of both. Love it. Like the audience gets real into it and sings along, and it's very cathartic and political, but also good timey. Yeah, and I loved it. That sounds awesome. It was great. If you haven't heard them, especially in these times when like the Mexican American population is under attack, mm-hmm. I feel like we should boost our Mexican American art makers as much as we can and yeah. they're among my favorites yeah the santa cecilia um also our boss debbie got me totally hooked on the crime town season two podcast series the ballad of billy balls mm. oh, i've heard you guys talking yeah. about it oh so good. good did you hear it i've heard about it that's that's on the, the the high up podcast list for me i live in the east village it is my spiritual home and <laughs> 
this um, podcast takes place in the East Village of the 1980s. Really? That I first started to visit when I was a child. <laughs> and it was wild. <laughs> and um, it definitely captures that scene mm. um, and all the crazy adults that were running around. Artists and being addicts and mm. being untethered. Um, the the gist is that um, a gentleman whose stage name is Billy Balls got gunned down by an undercover cop in his home. And because um, he, he was with a woman and they were like very much in love but not married. And because they weren't married, she was left out of the loop of like a lot of information around his death. And his death has haunted her all these decades later. Like he he was buried um like in potter's field she had no idea where he was buried she didn't know why he was killed or what happened it was like one day she show she like came home and like her lover man was being carted off to the hospital and she like went to the hospital and he was still alive and then shortly afterwards he was dead well and like she didn't know anything else and she wasn't able to claim his body and she wasn't able to get any records and so this um whole season of crime town is all about getting the answers to hopefully help her move on because she's been obsessed with her true love's death all these years Aww. it's a real east village love story mystery and it's got all that 80s flavor um and also yesterday i watched the andy warhol film heat Mm. there's um on roku there's all these crazy channels if you have a roku and one of them is called grindhouse grit has a bunch of andy warhol movies on there and a lot of them are you know like there's empire state which is just the empire state building for hours or you know wow. stuff like that but this one heat actually has a plot and it's hilarious it's definitely evocative of early john waters oh. where it's just like friends having a good time like you can tell that there's like kind of a plot sort of that someone's like okay now pretend like you're a street hustler and you want to stay at this apartment but you don't have any money to pay you know and then they just sort of like go like i don't know if there like, was really a script improv. or anything yeah. it all was supposed to happen in hollywood and it, it actually um heat was supposed to be a parody of sunset boulevard but you would like barely know it <laughs> But it's got it's got Warhol superstar um, Little Joe D'Alessandro starring in it, who's just such a beautiful youth. Mm. And um, everybody, even though it takes place in Hollywood, everyone has like the New Yorkiest accent of all time <laughs> in it. And it's so funny. And there's like he's like hanging out like by the pool in this like sleazy, like residential motel. And some girls like you like health food. You like nuts. You ever had nuts? It's just like it it is so much more than the sum of its parts. You can't really put a finger on why it's so charming, but it is. Andy Warhol didn't direct it or anything. Paul Paul Morrissey directed it, but well, that's probably why it has more of a thing going on. <laughs> but Andy Warhol just kind of orchestrated mm. it. If you want to see Little Joe being a sex symbol, this is this is the way to do it. Um, I recommend Heat. It. Heat. Heat. It's this, I believe, the third in like the Paul Morrissey trilogy. Um, and that, my friend, is what I've been watching. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Um, thank you so much to, first of all, our guest, Aaron Durham. Thank you so much for thank coming you to Bust Headquarters. So it's and been thanks a delight. For enlightening us, taxidermy. Yes. I'm so blown by the attention, like all the, the artistic weird. skill that. Yeah. Yeah. Coming from just to, people pulling dead animals out of the trash and sewing them together without any more to it than i had any idea <laughs> yeah. about yeah yeah and of course thank you so much to our producers kate moldenauer and jesse karen at more banana productions and our luscious audio engineer logan del fuego <laughs> and to our girl gang at bust magazine you can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and now on the gram. Oh, you are on the gram. At Rems Emily because some bitch stole Emily Rems. Oh, no. 
bucket. Oh no! But you can find me there at Rems Emily. Just last name and then first name. Emily, got it. I'll find you. And and where can people find you, Aaron, on the socials? I'm on Instagram like a lot, probably too much. Um, I'm at History Boutique. That's my production company. Um, yeah, I'm on. I'm on there everywhere else but that's my home like Instagram <laughs> you cannot find Callie on the socials she's incognito back you off. can try to find her but you'll fail <laughs> oh no um, but you can email I'll both of you us though. okay you can, you'll get into the <laughs> yay to the private tier I like it I like it <laughs> like the champagne room yes <laughs> you can email both of us I'm at Emily Rams at bus.com Callie W at bus.com and you can learn more about the show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. Also, in addition, if you want to leave us a five-star rating and a nice review and then email us either at emilyramsatbust.com or calliewbust.com and say, hey, I left you this review. Here's my screen name. We might give you a subscription to Bust Magazine. Ooh. It's possible. It could happen. Oh, also, we have the Holiday Craftacular coming up. Mm-hmm. Um we're still looking for vendors and teachers for craft classes and life living classes, I suppose you would call it. Um, if you want to learn more about that, it's, I think, bus.com backslash craftacular. Yes. And also, also speaking of the craftacular, it's going to be the first weekend in December and we're going to be recording a live yes. episode of Pop-Tarts there at the craftacular. And I found out today... Then we're also going to be giving a podcasting workshop afterwards. Ooh, so fun. if you want to mix and mingle with us, that's where that's you want to do happening. it. Yeah. Finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out and we super duper appreciate it. Until next time. Mm-hmm. <laughs>